This podcast is made possible by Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Welcome to Go Bronx Podcast. Today we're recording episode 19 from the Bronx Museum of the Arts located on the historic Grand Concourse. I'm Olga Luce. And I'm Angel. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss the history of Latinx people in the Bronx. Our borough has been home to many people of various backgrounds and ethnicities. In fact, Swedish merchant Jonas Bronk, mentioned in our very first episode, The Beginning, settled his farm with the help of a diverse group of German, Danish, and Dutch indentured servants, while the native Wekwaskeeks observed nearby. The Bronx would later see its own population increase, with concentrations of other growing ethnic groups, such as the Irish and Germans in the mid-19th century, Italians at the turn of the 20th century, and a once-dominating Jewish population in the 1930s. African Americans would also populate the Bronx in large numbers, especially after the turn of the 20th century, with significant migration movements from the South and the Caribbean. Yet the Latinx community in the Bronx today will continue to be the borough's largest and fastest-growing ethnic group since the second half of the 20th century. Being one of the most diverse ethnic groups in the world, Latinx people comprise over half of the Bronx's population today, with many hailing from all over Latin America. There were certainly some curious early mentions of individuals connected to the Latinx legacy in the Bronx. By 1855, the Bronx was primarily a farming community. Wealthy families filled the landscape with sprawling estates and fanciful mansions. One Augustus Zerega di Zerega, raised in Venezuela, found a nice place to live in the southeastern shores of the Bronx, where Ferry Point Park is today. Although Zerega descended from Italy by way of the island of Martinique, he was raised by his Venezuelan stepmother and later became a close friend to Simon Bolivar, the great liberator of Latin America. However, when the effects of revolution began to affect Zerega's assets, he moved to New York City in the 1830s and later, in 1854, to the Throg's Neck section of the Bronx. When Zerega arrived, he brought his whole family and his entire slave workforce with him. Although his coffee merchant business was steady, it was the shipping business that the Zerega family was known for. According to historical accounts, Zerega ran his business without recording any transactions using his unique memory. At the mouth of the Westchester Creek, Zerega had his boats docked, each sporting the company's red flag with a Z printed on them. Island Hall, as Zerega named his mansion, is now the site of Ferry Point Park, where the Bronx side approach of the Bronx Whitestone Bridge is located. So that's where the Zerega Avenue got its name. I always wondered about that. Okay, then here's another person whose surname graces a Hunts Point Street sign. When the Civil War ended in 1865, Hunts Point was also a favorable place to live for those who benefited from New York City's thriving exporting and importing business. One particular gentleman by the name of Innocencio Casanova enjoyed his own Castello di Casanova, located on the southeastern side of the neighborhood. Formerly the estate of Benjamin Whitlock, Castello de Casanova offered beautiful views of the Long Island Sound and its proximity to the city was just as appealing. Casanova was a rich Cuban importer who later became a staunch supporter of Cuban independence in the face of Spanish domination of the island. 
It is reputed that Casanova, and later his daughter Emilia Casanova, and her husband, exiled author Cirilo Villaverde, worked in support of the Cuban rebels. Legend has it that Cuban rebels would navigate up Leggett's Creek in small boats to retrieve the cache of rifles and gunpowder stored at Castelo de Casanova. Later, they would smuggle the contraband onto ships docked in the East River bound for Cuba. Casanova himself had traveled to Cuba a number of occasions until he was finally denied entry by the Spanish government in 1871. After his death in 1890, Castelo de Casanova stood vacant for many years. For neighborhood kids, it was an enormous playhouse where many ghost stories were told. Emilia Casanova will be remembered as the founder of Las Hijas de Cuba, the Daughters of Cuba, one of the very first revolutionary clubs exclusive to women. She was also the very first Cuban woman to address the United States Congress on that matter. By the mid-1850s, many countries in Latin America had already formed their own individual republics. Once independence was instituted, a number of wealthy Latinx families sent their sons and daughters to the United States to earn a decent education. The Ursuline Academy for Girls originally located on the northeast corner of Westchester and Caldwell Avenues, was one of the ideal schools where many young Latinas from countries such as Mexico and Cuba came to earn their education. Founded by Ursuline nuns from St. Louis, today the Catholic institution continues to serve young girls in the Bronx, but in a different location south of Bedford Park Boulevard. After 1892, the Ursuline Academy building later became the first location for Lebanon Hospital. Then in 1943, the building was taken over by the Bronx Garment Center, where many incoming Puerto Ricans found jobs. Yet, like many factories at the time that decided to relocate to other places and therefore taking the jobs with it, the Bronx Garment Center was closed in the mid-1950s and later demolished to make way for the St. Mary's housing projects. Another ideal school in the Bronx was St. John's College, now Fordham University. At the same time young Latinas were attending the Ursuline Academy, several young men from Republic South of the Rio Grande attended St. John's College. According to the archives at Fordham University, Havana-born Esteban Bellang was the first Cuban and the first Latin American to play Major League Baseball. This was in the mid-1800s, kind of before Major League Baseball was Major League Baseball, so not on any teams that exist today. He later became one of Cuba's first great baseball player managers. Beyang learned how to play the game while he was a student at Fordham University from 1863 to 1868. During his time at Fordham, Beyang played for the newly created Fordham Rose Hill Baseball Club. Founded in the late 1850s, the club played the first ever nine-man team college baseball game in the United States against St. Francis Xavier College on November 3, 1859. In 1868, after his time at Fordham, Esteban, who went by Steve, played for the Unions of Morrisania, the very first Bronx-based baseball team way before the Bronx Bombers, also known as the New York Yankees, in 1869, Beyang joined the Troy Haymakers, for whom he played third base until 1872. After his time with the Haymakers, Beyang played a year with the New York Mutuals and then returned to Cuba to create the Havana Baseball Club, the island's very first. On December 27, 1874, 
Beyond created and played in the first organized baseball game in Cuba. The Saldo brothers, Charles, Henry, and Frederick, were also born in Havana, attended St. John's College, learned and perfected the game of baseball, and returned to Cuba in 1878 to create the Almendares Baseball Club. They will become the number one rival to the Havana baseball team founded by Bellang. That's right. Baseball in Latin America has its deep and historic roots in the Bronx. Who'd have thunk it, right? By the mid-19th century, Manhattan became a hotbed for Cuban and Puerto Rican revolutionary activity. Notable Latinx revolutionaries such as Ramon Emeterio Betances, José Martí, and earlier mentioned Emilia Casanova, all used their social standing and networks in the city to further their revolutionary agendas. More Latinx people were found working as cigar rollers and in sweatshops during the years between the two world wars. When the island of Puerto Rico became a protectorate by the United States in 1917, American citizenship was granted and New York City became a major destination because of its thriving commercial harbors and factories. To the incoming Latinx people, this meant jobs and prosperity. Cubans also started making their way into the U.S. in droves, but places like Florida and New Jersey became strongholds for that contingent. As time progressed, Puerto Ricans and Cubans began to assimilate into New York life by familiarizing themselves with the New York transportation system and soon started to venture out of El Barrio and into the Bronx. At this time, however, very few Puerto Ricans lived in the Bronx. Of those who did, the men first found work on the few remaining farms and the women worked as maids. In 1920, a local Bronx newspaper reported that a maid from Puerto Rico was involved in one of the earliest automobile accidents in the Bronx when she was hit by a car while crossing Prospect Avenue. Also, in the 1920s, early Puerto Rican boxing greats such as Escolástico Sotero Fortier, or better known as Colicolo, was already trading punches with other boxing greats at the New York Coliseum near Starlight Park in West Farms. Yet, when the stock market crashed in 1929, it affected not only the U.S., but also the world in general. This dark moment in American history saw a number of factories and large businesses closed, causing widespread unemployment. This gave Puerto Ricans a good enough reason not to take advantage of their U.S. citizenship to travel to New York or to the Bronx. Out of total curiosity, I've managed to gain access to old Bronx telephone books dating back to the late 1920s. Very few Latinx surnames are found, but there were a handful of Garcias that lived in places like Walton Avenue and West 230th Street. Some Lopez's lived on East 130th Street and on Tebout Avenue, while some Perez's lived on St. Lawrence Avenue in Soundview. In many cases, Latinx surnames may sound like surnames from other ethnic groups. A classic example is the surname Moran or Moran. This surname has been shared by both Hispanic and Irish families for centuries. So if you ever come across the Moran surname without any accents, you might just never know. With places like El Barrio, my birthplace in Manhattan, and Greenpoint, Brooklyn getting overpopulated with mostly Puerto Ricans and the forces of urban development dictating population shift, the Bronx became a destination that will deal with the overspillage of the city's growing Latinx community. The years during and after World War II meant an expanding economy that enticed many impoverished Puerto Ricans to migrate onto the mainland. 
communities in the South Bronx, such as Mott Haven, were the areas first populated by Puerto Ricans. For every tenement apartment that was being vacated by those climbing the socioeconomic ladder, a Puerto Rican family would soon occupy it. The Art Steel Factory, located in the heart of Mott Haven, was one of the first to hire the newly arrived Latinx. Some Puerto Ricans went into business for themselves. One of the very first Puerto Rican-owned businesses in the Bronx in the 1940s was the Mayagüez Shoe Store on Brook Avenue, south of 138th Street. Another business that was founded in the early 1940s was Casa Hernández Music Store, founded by Victoria Hernández, sister to the famous Puerto Rican composer Rafael Hernández. The store's historic legacy still lives on as Casa Amadeo Music Store, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Major League Baseball in the Bronx also saw the arrival of Latinx athletes, harking back to its historic legacy at Fordham University. Famous Latinx names that have graced the New York Yankees rosters was Panama-born Hector Lopez, who was the very first Latinx to play for the team. Luis Arroyo from Puerto Rico played for the Yankees from 1960 to 1963. Cuban-born Pedro Ramos played for the team from 1964 to 66. Pedro Gonzalez of the Dominican Republic played for the Pinstripes from 1963 to 1966. My dad's favorite, Dominican-born Felipe Alou, was a Bronx bomber from 1971 to 1973. As for the Mets, you know that other team. Puerto Rican Bobby Bonilla grew up in the Bronx, and he attended Herbert Lehman High School at Westchester Square. There are a lot of contribution Latinx people made besides sports. When we come back, we will celebrate a few more Latinos that made a significant impact to our communities. The world has changed a lot in the last year, and more than ever, you need health insurance you can rely on. Empire Blue Cross Blue Shield is the whole health company, and that means they are dedicated to improving the health and well-being of everyone in the Bronx and throughout the New York service area. They've been supporting the health of Bronxites for 86 years, providing you access to high-quality, affordable care. To learn how you can make a whole health connection, go to empireblue.com. Sigourney Weaver here to tell you about the New York Botanical Garden, 250 acres, 1 million plants, and you. Now open in the Bronx. Plan your visit at nybg.org. City Bike is expanding to the Bronx. Membership is only $179 annually. New Yorkers who live in NYCHA or receive SNAP benefits can take advantage of the discounted City Bike membership for only $5 a month. Visit citybikenyc.com pricing to get started. As the Puerto Rican population continued to increase in the Bronx, they began to expand into fields of government. Herman Badillo was elected Bronx Borough President in 1964, making him the city's first of Puerto Rican and Latinx descent to do so. Later on, he also became the first Puerto Rican congressman in the history of our nation. Roberto Ramirez also was the nation's first Puerto Rican to be elected as a Democratic County leader for the Bronx in New York State. The Puerto Rican and Cuban communities in New York City began to grow in large numbers by the late 1940s. Mambo was the major sound at the time, with Latinx musicians hailing from communities like El Barrio and throughout the South Bronx. 
The mambo musical genre over the years began to evolve into forms such as the cha-cha-cha, pachanga, Latin boogaloo, and eventually salsa. A list of other Latinx music legends that performed and or lived in the Bronx was Mambo King's Tito Puente, Machito, and Tito Rodriguez, also Cuban composer and band leader Arsenio Rodriguez, brothers Charlie and Eddie Palmieri, Orlando Marin, Manny Oquendo, Ray Barreto, Barry Rogers, Johnny Pacheco, Joe Loco, Joe Quijano, Willie Colon, and Hector Lavoe lived in the Bronx with his sister Priscilla for some time. However, by the 1960s, salsa music began to popularize more in the South Bronx. Entertainment venues on Southern Boulevard that once served the older immigrant stock was now catering to the new sound. One example was the second floor of the Spooner Theater located on Southern Boulevard in Hunts Point. Although the theater itself dates back to the 1920s, the Tritons, After Hours Club, was opened in 1960, where record store owner and music producer Al Santiago founded the Alegre All-Stars. Soon after, Fania All-Stars was created by Jerry Masucci and Bronx-raised Dominican Johnny Pacheco. Hey, Olga, there were other entertainment venues that played major roles in the cultivation of Latinx music and culture in the South Bronx. By the late 1940s, the old Forum Theater on East 138th Street was now Teatro Puerto Rico to better suit the rapid change in the area. The theater soon became a center of Latin American culture, where it featured live performances by such stars as Tito Rodriguez and his marimba band, the Mexican comedian Cantinflas, and the Argentine singer Libertad La Malque graced its stage. Even world-famous Puerto Rican singer Jose Feliciano got his first break at the theater in 1954 at the age of nine. The Hunts Point Palace, the Boulevard Theater, Colgate Gardens, and other Bronx venues served as entertainment hubs for Latinx musicians. Let's not forget the ladies of Latinx music who lived in the Bronx. The Lowe's Boulevard Theater was amazed at the thunderous voice of Guadalupe Victoria Yoli Raymond better known to us as La Lupe, when she made her first debut there with Tito Puente and his orchestra in 1964. She would later become the very first female of Latinx descent to perform at Carnegie Hall. La Lupe spent her last years in the South Bronx, attended Lehman College, and after her death in 1992, was buried in St. Raymond Cemetery, mentioned in episode 18. East 140th Street near St. Anne's Avenue was co-named La Lupe Way to commemorate her legacy. Some Bronx educational and cultural institutions were founded on the heels of the expanding Puerto Rican population in the borough. Named after Eugenio Maria de Hostos, a prominent Puerto Rican educator and activist, a new community college offered bilingual education in the health fields and offers immigrants from so many varied backgrounds an opportunity for a decent education. Osto's Community College began at an abandoned warehouse on the Grand Concourse just south of East 149th Street in 1968. It was a time when the Bronx was going through major societal issues where the educational demands of Puerto Rican and other Latinx leaders were met. Bregones Theater began in the South Bronx in 1979 where it still presents performances in both Spanish and English and became a showcase for young talent and playwrights. They offer a great educational curriculum in theater consisting of performance workshops, 
public dialogues, mentorship, internships, technical training, and volunteer opportunities. Today, Bregones Theater is located on Walton Avenue, just north of Hostos Community College. The main goal is to keep servicing not only the Latinx community, but also the South Bronx community in general. During the 1960s, certain community organizations were created in the South Bronx when resources and opportunities to progress were scarce. It was a time when the South Bronx was experiencing the drastic effects of deindustrialization, population shift, and a rising crime rate due to drug use and unemployment. With compounding effect, many of the borough's middle class decided to move out, making it difficult for tenement landlords to make a profit and maintain their properties. Soon after, the Bronx began to burn. One community organization that became a pioneer to urban renewal and progress was United Bronx Parents, Inc., or Padres Unidos del Bronx, Incorporado. The founder was legendary Bronx Puerto Rican activist Dr. Evelina Lopez Antonetti, who struggled to fight social injustices in the realms of education, urban culture, and poverty. By 1967, United Bronx Parents programs expanded with satellite branches throughout the borough, offering new advocacy programs such as in criminal justice for youth, welfare and housing advocacy, and job training for parents with school children. The organization also became a strong supporter for bilingual education and was the first and only sponsor for the free lunch program in city's public schools until the program expanded years later. The Banana Kelly Organization, established in 1977, began with the tireless efforts of several Black and Latinx residents in the neighborhood who wanted to stop the destruction of their homes on Kelly Street. The organization is named after that street in that part of Longwood as it is crescent-shaped like a banana. Since then, Banana Kelly has renovated and restored apartment houses for affordable living through sweat equity, which meant all resources came out of their own pockets and energy. Today, Banana Kelly has rehabilitated over 2,000 units of affordable housing and manage your own over 1,000 units of housing in 47 buildings. With the birth of hip-hop in the Bronx, young Bronx Latinx people took part in a new musical culture with breakdancing, rapping, and graffiti. Although hip-hop was originally introduced by African Americans in the Bronx, neighboring young Puerto Ricans began to embrace the genre as well. The Rock Steady Crew, a group of breakdancers and uprockers, first began as the Bronx Boys in the late 1970s, with its founders Jimmy Lee, a Puerto Rican, and Jimmy D, an African American. Since its inception, Rock Steady was always made up of Latinx and Black teens from all over New York. Today, it is internationally known, and the great merits of breakdancing is now an official Olympic sport. Graffiti was also part of hip-hop culture, as different artists roamed the city at all hours to bomb the subways and other structures. In the Bronx, graffiti was frowned upon as it was used to deface and destroy public property. After a while, some graffiti artists started transforming their work into modern pieces of art. One famous Latinx group of artists was Tat's Crew. During the period when graffiti covered building walls and subway cars, a number of art admirers realized that some graffiti writers had true artistic talent in their use of color and design. The admirers reasoned if their efforts were turned to more socially acceptable forms of expression, their graffiti art would be welcomed. 
The members of Tat's crew used their talents to decorate walls with creative advertising or artwork paid for and with the permission of each property owner. Today, the art done by Tat's crew and other groups has inspired graffiti artists all over the world. We can learn more about all of this at the new hip-hop museum located near the Bronx Terminal Market. There's a link in our show notes. Well, today Bronx Cubans fare less in numbers compared to places like Miami, Florida. However, the Bronx is still home to a good handful of Cubanos. Many Cubans share a lot in common with Puerto Ricans, and sometimes there may be confusion between the two cultures. One thing is for sure. Cubans, along with other Latinx groups, all find the Bronx as a place to feel comfortable. With so much ethnic diversity in the borough, there's definitely no room for cultural segregation or alienation. Another group from the Spanish-speaking Caribbean is now the largest and fastest-growing group in New York City, even surpassing Puerto Ricans, especially in the Bronx. Dominicans first made places like Washington Heights and the western edges of the Bronx as a stronghold. There are historic accounts of Dominicans living in New York City in the late 1930s, but it was not until after the 1960s that Dominicans started immigrating to the U.S. in major droves, even today. Just the way Puerto Ricans came to the Bronx and started their climb up the socioeconomic ladder, Dominicans are following the same footsteps in Bronx politics and life. Congressman Adriano Aspellat, who represents some of the West Bronx, made history when he was elected the first Dominican-American and first formerly undocumented immigrant to the United States Congress. By the end of the 1990s, Mexicans was another large-growing ethnic group in the Bronx. They replaced many Puerto Ricans in Mott Haven, but also live in Belmont, Bedford Park, Norwood, and other Bronx neighborhoods. Although Mexicans have lived in the western part of the nation for hundreds of years, it was in the 1980s that brought many of them across the country to settle in places like the Bronx. Just like all previous ethnic groups who've arrived in the Bronx, Mexicans came to this borough for job opportunities and prosperity. Today, Mexicans consist of almost a quarter of the workforce in the Bronx. Those who came in earlier times have established their own businesses, paving the way for others to arrive in the future. Also in the 1980s, immigrants arriving from the South American continent began to arrive in the Bronx and flew their flags to assert their identities in a sea of Dominican and Puerto Rican neighbors. In this way, residents originally from Venezuela, Ecuador, Colombia, and Argentina can be spotted. From Central America, there has also been a large migration of Hondurans who first congregated in the Tremont area. Amongst them, you will also find people of the Garifuna, descendants of Arawak and African people of the Caribbean who came to settle in different Central American countries in the late 16th century. New York City today is home to over 200,000 people of Garifuna origins, with most of them living in the Bronx. Let's not forget Panamanians, Nicaraguans, and Guatemalans, who, although live in the Bronx in small numbers compared to other boroughs, still call the Bronx home and mix in with their Latinx neighbors. When we come back, let's talk about some notable Bronx people of Latinx origin. And now for a little segment we like to call Yo Angel. Yo Olga. We have some very historic neighborhoods in the South Bronx. 
One of them that always piqued my curiosity is a little area called Hunts Point. Tell us a little bit about this place. Well, Hunts Point is one of the oldest vicinities in our borough. This southern peninsula, which is bounded by the East River to the west and the Bronx River to the east, was a popular location for the Lenape natives, in which they refer to as Quinahum, meaning the planting neck. So fertile was the soil at Hunts Point that when Europeans began to settle in large numbers in what we now call the Bronx in the 1660s, Quinahum became the ideal location to establish a farm. Well, that is exactly what happened in 1664. Settlers from the English colony of Connecticut were led south to places like the Bronx, as it was a period when the English were finally taking control of New Netherland from the Dutch. As an act meant to extend influence in the southern regions, the English authorities in Connecticut commissioned Edward Jessup and John Richardson to bring more settlers into New Netherland and purchase land west of the Bronx River. Farmers from the village of Westchester soon moved in on the territory, a region they would eventually refer to as West Farms. Anyway, what we now know as Hunts Point was once the southern region of that ancient village of West Farms. Edward Jessup, one of the proprietors of this part of West Farms, died soon after arriving to the land. His widowed wife, Elizabeth Ann Jessup, sold the entire estate to her son-in-law, Thomas Hunt, and whose surname will be attached to that area of the South Bronx for many more years to come. And now you know. Even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say. People just liked it better that way. Let's mention some familiar and famous Bronx Latinx names of today. Bronx-born Sonia Maria Sotomayor, first Puerto Rican and Latinx justice on the Supreme Court and its third female justice. Judy Reyes, an American actress of Dominican heritage who lived near Bainbridge Avenue. She's best known for her portrayal of nurse Carla Espinosa on the TV comedy Scrubs. Of course, who can forget Jenny from the block? Jennifer Lopez. She was born in the Bronx and grew up in the Castle Hill neighborhood. The music group Aventura is made up of Dominican-Americans who fused bachata with modern popular sounds like hip-hop and R&B. Olga, did you know that I attended the same high school as some of the band members and at the same time? Anyway, Christopher Carlos Rios, better known as Big Pun, was a Puerto Rican rapper whose full-length debut album, Capital Punishment, became the first album by a solo Latinx rapper to go platinum, peaking at number five on the Billboard 200. Hey, don't forget Fat Joe, also a Puerto Rican from the Bronx. Okay, okay. I know we're really feeling our Puerto Rican roots right now, but we're going to have to leave it there because we can just go on and on and on and on. That's our show this week. Thank all of you for tuning in to our Go Bronx pod produced by the Bronx Tourism Council and made possible by Blue Cross Blue Shield, the whole health company. Additional support is provided by NYC and Company. Gracias, thank you very mucho to the Bronx Museum of the Arts for allowing us to set up our makeshift recording studio today. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at GoBXPod. If you like us, tell your friends. And if they already like us, make some new friends and then tell them. For information about this episode and more, visit ilovethebronx.com. 
And while you're there, subscribe to our e-newsletter to get the latest and greatest news from and about the Bronx. As always, I'm Ogaloos. And I'm Angel. Bronx for yours.